Okay, welcome to the Pick 6 Podcast. I'm Will Brinson. I'm the host of the daily CBS Sports NFL Podcast. It's Nerd Week, nay, Analytic Week, and we're rolling right along with another great guest. Coming up shortly, joining myself and Sean Wagner-McGuff. Hi, Sean. That's where Long you say, time to talk. That's where you say hi. Is Sam Monson of Pro Football Focus. Excited to talk to him. A great conversation. Uh, if you haven't listened already, you should definitely rewind, uh, download, unsubscribe, resubscribe, baby. Uh, download the, uh, the older pods. Andy Benoit on Monday. Great stuff. Uh, Aaron Schatz of Football Outsiders on Tuesday. Also excellent stuff. And this pod with Sam is fantastic. Um, through the magic of technology, um, we, uh, Sean and I have already talked to Sam and Sean, you can confirm. It was a good conversation, right? Yeah, except when he refused to say Josh Allen sucks. That was the spoiler alert. Right. I mean, Sam's not, not a good moment for me. Sam's not showing up here spitting hot takes. He's got great analytical insight. I did think I know. I want, I thought the information supported me here. I was, I was ready for the Atlanta analytical community to back me up. And I'm not sure nope. if you're aware of this. That's not how, uh, analytics work. You don't come to a conclusion and then be like, give me the answer I need. Um, you work your way and then the conclusion tells you what it is. Yeah, but I've worked my way without analytics to this conclusion, and I was hoping that the smart way of, of viewing Josh Allen would back it up. Okay, which well, is not the case, well, anyway, but. you can find out what Sam Bonson uh, at PFF underscore Sam thinks about that. And by the way, Sam actually gave our uh, everybody listening to this podcast a podcast a code if you want twenty five percent off Pro Football Focus. Uh, go is it PFF twenty five? Is that what he said? Yes, PFF twenty five. Sean wrote it down. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's PFF 25. Listen at the end, 25% off whatever you want for Pro Yeah, don't tell them. Make them listen to the whole interview. I'm just telling you. Maybe, maybe they'll trust me. Maybe they won't. Uh, reminder that you should subscribe to, uh, uh, Fantasy Football Today. It's, uh, Dave Richard, Heath Cummings, Jamie Eisenberg, um, and, uh, uh, Bob, Bob Blazer. I can't remember what his name is. He's some guy that he hosts the show. I don't know. Who the hell knows? Oh I don't know. He's not any good. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But he, the, the show itself is very good. They got breaker sleep, uh, break, breakouts, sleepers, bust, mock drafts, reader emails, everything you need to dominate your draft. So fire up iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and download fantasy football today. In fact, if you go to, if you, if you open up iTunes, like, uh, something that I do and maybe your mom does and, because I don't think parents do that, and go to the top on the, on the store, top podcast, it is one of, like literally when you scroll down, when you open up iTunes, it's right there. It's never too early for fantasy football. Big CBS logo, fantasy football today. Check it out. Man, it is great stuff. Okay, so, um, oh, and a reminder, I'm going to tell you all this all through it. We're working on something for a listener league type of thing. Maybe daily fantasy, maybe best ball. Probably not going to be the full season long leagues. That's a lot for me to deal with. I got enough of my own fantasy football leagues to deal with. Um, I will answer any and all emails or DMs related to fantasy football questions if you have them at Will Brinson on Twitter, uh, Instagram too. I, I, somebody called me a nasty word on my Instagram DMs. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I, those are harder to deal with for some reason. Uh, but you can email me willbrinson at gmail.com. I will answer any and all dynasty trade or uh, keeper questions, draft questions, whatever you want. No lineup questions though. Sean answers those. That's Sean J Wagner at yahoo.com. Um, let's move on to the news, Sean, unless I'm forgetting to plug something. Am I forgetting to plug something? No, I don't think so. Like, I don't know. Brinson, just keep moving. Yeah. And, this isn't my podcast. All right. Just tell me when to start listening and then, then I'll be present here. 
Okay. It's now's the time to start listening. Okay. Andrew Luck, we got an injury. I don't even want to call this an update. This isn't an update. An update is when you, when you're told about a pre-existing injury. It's not when Jim Irsay goes on Sirius XM radio and says, I really feel confident this is via uh, Stephen Holder of the Athletic and Zach Kiefer of the, now with the Athletic, I think. Yes. Yeah. He left the, by the way. Two people have joined this podcast this offseason, Jordan Rodriguez and Zach Kiefer. And within a week of doing, coming on this podcast, they left their jobs for the athletic. Maybe we're just a launching pad, Sean. Uh, anyway, Andrew, uh, Jim Mercy on Sirius XM Radio. I really feel confident that he's going to find his way through this thing. I think after the Kevin Durant thing, everyone's erring on the side of caution. But quite frankly, this is not even in the Achilles tendon. It's in another area. It's a bone. I'm not good at these things. But it's a small little bone. Ryan Diem had it, and Raheem Brock, I think, had it, the trainers told me. But he's doing very well. Very excited. He's a married man, baby on the way, and he couldn't be more excited for the season. We wish there wasn't any little tweaks at all, but, you know, these things just come up, and you just got to deal with them. That's Jim Ursay spouting the crazy, Sean. And you and I talked about this before we even really thought about doing this podcast we're freaking the freak out. This is a nightmare. I own multiple shares of the Colts at plus money to win the AFC South, and I wish I didn't have those shares right now. Yeah, let's just preface this by saying the Colts all along have been calling this a calf strain, which doesn't sound all that concerning. It sounds like, oh, just rest, take it easy. He'll be fine by September. Now Jim Irsay is calling it something with a bone. The calf is a muscle. Unless, I mean, I'm not a doctor. Maybe I'm wrong. The calf is not a bone. The calf calf is not not a bone. bone. I don't know what's more concerning, a calf or a bone. I really don't. What's concerning right now is this just screams 2017 summer because it screams the Colts aren't really being entirely forthcoming about what this is because you have the owner saying something that the coach and player haven't been saying this entire process. And second of all, at some point, the Colts need to realize that continually to reference Kevin Durant does not make anyone feel better. You know what Kevin Durant did? He ruptured his Achilles tendon. Stop referencing <laughs> Kevin Durant and being like, it's okay, look at Kevin Durant. It did not work out for Kevin Durant. And so the third thing is Jim Irsay saying, I feel, quote, very confident, has the complete opposite effect on me because this is a guy who in January 2015 or January 2015, 2017, excuse me, luck undergoes shoulder surgery. Irsay announces it on Twitter says he will be ready for the season. You look at all the comments the Colts made throughout that summer of 2017, there was never any concern, never any indication that he would actually miss time until they had to place him on the PUP list and so on, until they had to place him on injured reserve without him playing a single snap. So all of this just feels so reminiscent, eerily so, to 2017, with the only difference is we remember now what happened two years ago, which means we're not giving them the benefit of the doubt. And so I think I was on last week's podcast. I think you were asking us what our level of concern is. I feel like I probably downplayed it as long as he's ready by September. I don't really care about preseason and training camp. I don't think performance matters there. All of a sudden with Jim Mercer's quote, and he tried to make everyone feel better, but he had the complete opposite effect. I don't think as of right now, I can take the Colts to win the division because I simply do not know when Andrew Luck is going to play football again. And um, if you read who wrote that article, um, was Yahoo Sports talking uh, to Chris Ballard. Therese Paylor's like, if Andrew Luck, the headline was, if Andrew Luck misses games, Colts won't lose sleep. I'm losing sleep. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sleep tonight like over this. prepared for Andrew Luck not to play at the beginning of the season. That's exactly what it sounds like. And it, it I, 
By the way, I'm trying to find what Raheem Brock's injury was, and I'm all the way back to like 2007. I when, tried and I couldn't find it. Were you on? I mean, so but just a f- funny aside on the like I found Roto World's updates and I was like scrolling through them, and one from like December 2007 is Raheem Brock quote tweeted in quote it's like his Twitter was not an exception. It was like so it's like Raheem Brock tweeted that he was hurt, and they're like he tweeted. <laughs> just imagine a world where like you have to be like. This guy got on Twitter. I don't know. Find it amusing. Um, I can't find the injury either. So who the hell knows? I mean, I mean, is this, is there any chance this is that Jim Irsay is just crazy and doesn't know what he's talking about? Yes. Yes. I think there's like, a, I think there's like, it's like 50 50. It's like, I'll say, I'll say 33.3% chance Jim Irsay has no idea what he's talking about and it's just a calf strain and 66.6% chance it's something else that the Colts aren't. Well, the thing that makes me think it's not a calf strain is that he suffered this injury in April. And to be honest, I didn't fully realize that until today when I was going back and reading all these stories because he hasn't practiced since, I think, July 28th or July 29th. That's concerning. But it's concerning that he hasn't practiced in two weeks from an injury that happened months ago. This isn't something he did at the end of July. This is something that's lingered that long, which makes me think if it is a calf strain, it seems like a pretty serious calf strain. Because, I mean, I, I'm not, again, I'm not an injury expert. I don't know how long a calf strain is typically keeping you out. But if he suffered it in April, you would think he'd be able to practice in some form. And I think the other thing that you probably have to weigh here is that maybe he is healthy enough to play if it was a regular season. And maybe this is Andrew Luck a mental thing because he himself has admitted um, through that shoulder process that he kind of doubted himself along the way and he sure. had these fears about him. And understandably so. He couldn't pick up a football and throw it for well over a year. And so maybe this is the same type of thing where he's saw what happened to Durant and he's like, I don't want that to happen to me. Um, so I, it, it it's funny because if this was happening to any other quarterback, I would still be kind of shrugging it off as until he's not playing week one, I'm not going to panic. But because it was only two years ago where the similar thing was happening with his shoulder, um, I think I'm off the Colts bandwagon reluctantly uh, because if they start Jacoby Brissett, they're not winning that division. I mean, I think they could win the division with Jacoby Brissett. I mean, just it's not likely, but I think they could. I mean, I, again, I don't. But you're not picking them to. You're not. You wouldn't pick them. I don't think over the Texans and the and the Titans. I would assume. Mm, probably not. I mean, I'm sort of. Pot committed at this point, but um, I'm saying when you submit your predictions for CBS Sports, I will, probably in an article or podcast form. And you also, by the way, say he misses the first month because that doesn't sound like he's going to miss the whole year. They start against the Chargers in LA, uh, and then they go to Nashville to face the Titans, and then they host host the Falcons. So those are three tough games. I would I would say even with Andrew Luck because you're going on the road across the country. You're going to Nashville for a Titans team that no one is really talking about the win of the division, but we were just talking about this on Slack before we recorded. If Andrew Luck is hurt, that is the dark horse team that could suddenly swoop in and win the division. I mean, they almost uh, made the playoffs last year with Blaine Gabbard at quarterback for a few games. And the Falcons, at least for me, I'm looking at them as a playoff caliber team. So that with Jacoby Percet to me is one and two or 0 and three. And so. That's where the concern comes in. It's not like they're starting off with the Raiders who they get in week four. They're starting off with three tough games against three playoff caliber teams. Mm, that's fair. It's fair, dog. It's, it's fair to be concerned. I, I do think that before, I mean, look, we did a 10 team mock draft on, um, 
CBSSports.com, basically like while we were recording the, or right before we recorded the podcast. Some part of it was while we were recording. This is how I roll. Uh, and, um, luck fell really far. People are scared about him. So if you're drafting now and you want to take a like he's a pretty good value, there's a chance he's back week one. I mean, I don't want to say an, an easy chance, but there's definitely a chance, right? I mean, like, I, I, I mean. Let me, let me ask you this. Does this affect how you view T.Y. Hilton's stock in fantasy? Because I, I have. I don't know. I haven't drafted any T.Y. Hilton, so I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't. I'm just. I don't. I'm in a keeper league, and one of my friends who's in the league who has T.Y. Hilton texted me. Um, even though I'm in the league, he was asking me advice for who to keep, and he included T.Y. Hilton. And to me, that T.Y. Hilton is absolutely a keeper player. But when you start factoring this Andrew Luck stuff, I think there's maybe an argument you don't keep him. I would still probably keep him because we haven't heard anything official that he's missing or Andrew Luck's going to miss any time. But it, it, is, it is the kind of injury that will have effects over that entire offense and not just Andrew Luck in terms of fantasy. Hey, let me ask you something random. I just noticed uh, two guys I like, uh, Boyle Capper and uh, Joe Ostrowski. Boyle Capper is um, uh, a guy on gambling Twitter. They were just talking about um, odds on Roquan Smith to win uh, Defensive Player of the Year. At uh, what would you think his odds are? What's the leader at? Aaron um, Donald's at. Aaron Donald is at. I just noticed that Aaron Donald's is plus one eighty. That's ridiculous. I don't know. I would say there's like what a fifty to one chance for Con Smith. I've got a hundred and five to one. I mean, I kind of. So it's funny that you bring this up because. I'm putting I'm putting twenty five dollars on that right now. Because on on Tuesday I wrote the bold predictions for the Bears, and one of my five bold predictions was Roquan Smith making first team All Pro. Um, and obviously if he's making first team All Pro, which you know is a big if, it's a bold prediction, he would be probably in the running for Defensive Player in the Year, at least garnering some consideration. Why I like his I don't like his chances, but again I don't think he's going to win Defensive Player of the Year. He's not even first on his own team um, in terms of chances of winning it. But why I like him among inside linebackers, because he actually is going to get a lot of sacks, I think, a lot more than what we see inside linebackers coverage guys get because he is so good off the blitz and he is so quick and fast. And with so many defense key, defenses keying in on Khalil Mack um, and Akeem Hicks, and I think we saw it last year where a lot of his five sacks did come from Matt creating pressure and flushing him into Roquan Smith. So that's why I like Roquan as a potential all pro. Um, and I don't think he'll win defensive player of the year, but why he could is because if he is an inside linebacker and he's getting six or seven sacks to go along with five or six picks and a hundred tackles and the Bears defense is first in DVOA, he's got a shot. Uh, I would definitely, if you, ha- if you, if, if you have it out there, I have it locally at a hundred and four point five to one, put 25 on it. Or what, Who's when, another player in that range? I mean, uh, Casey Hayward's 130 to one. Uh, Yannick Ngakwe, 128 to one. That's actually pretty good value. Marshawn Lattimore, 103 to one. I mean, it's almost always a, a, a guy who delivered. The problem is like, it's hard to be a, a, a cornerback and do it. You got to pile up. Like, you got to, you got to lead the league in picks with like some pick sixes. And yeah, I mean, Akeem Hicks is 120 to one. Clint Mosley Jr. is 68 to 1. Oh, uh, oh, oh, God, TJ Watts 101 to 1. I don't hate it. Yeah, I just like any edge rusher because if anyone gets, you know, 16, 17 sacks, they're going to do it. He's 50 to 1 on, uh, on online sites. So if you can find a 105 to 1, that's worth a gamble. 
a literal gamble. Toss it out there, see what happens. Uh, I and if it. not, hit up Ryan Wilson because he might give you some crazy Bears odds because he likes he likes doing that. Or hit up Ryan Wilson because he's hitting that free cash with Mitchie Trubisky, uh, um, uh, total uh, uh, MVP awards. Breaking news as we're recording this. I, sorry, I couldn't help. I had to get on the tangent. I just saw the odds and it, it kind of piqued my interest. I love Roquan. He's a stat monster. Uh, Statement by an NFL spokesperson, Golden Tate of the New York Giants has been suspended without pay for the first four games of the 2019 regular season for violating the NFL policy of performance-enhancing substances. We knew that. What this means is that uh, Golden Tate's suspension appeal has been denied. Uh, he will be eligible to return to the active roster on Monday, September 30th, following the team's week four game versus Washington uh, we don't have to spend too much time on this, Sean. I think we sort of knew it was coming, but it is worth noting from a news standpoint. Also worth noting. I mean, this is why, this is why look, I don't, not going to go on this tangent too much more often, but people get all hot and bothered about our, our June and our May and June podcast. It's like, look guys, we're going to spend the next nine months pelting you with football news and notes. There's not a day that goes by that there's something going on. Okay. So just ease up in May and June, right? We're working to get the content out there. I like how you had a tangent about tangents. You're right. I did have a tangent. About Very tangent. on brand. Uh, so anyway, uh, Antonio Brown back at practice on Tuesday. Very exciting stuff. John, uh, Pat Kerwin, friend of the program. Love Pat Kerwin. Uh, spoke to, uh, John Groot on Sirius XM. And a direct question. When do you expect him here? Cause we're going to get asked that question like we'd know and we don't know. Do you know? Yeah, I mean, he's going to be here. He'll be here shortly. He's uh, a guy that is a very personal man. Uh, he's had a foot problem. It's been well documented. It was a terrible accident. I don't believe it was anybody's fault, but uh, took some time to recover from it. And he has a very big issue with this helmet. And uh, I'm not going to say I disagree with him. And I understand the <laughs> league's position. So we're in a tough spot. Uh, but we're going to support Antonio Brown because uh, I know what kind of competitor he is. I know what his capabilities are. And I know he wants to be here, but he'll be here soon. And when he does, uh, hopefully we can get on with life. Well, we are getting on with life because Antonio Brown is back at Raiders practice. Um, he also is looking, Sean, for a helmet. Yeah, he – so Pro Football Talk on Monday night reported that even though he lost his grievance and the league said – or an arbitrator said, look, you can't wear that helmet – the league will give him approval, I believe, if he can find that model of helmet that's been made less than 10 years ago, according to Pro Football Talk. Problem is, is that company has not made that model of helmet since 2011. So it's not like they can just, he can just go buy a new one. So what he did is he went on Twitter and he asked people on Twitter if anyone has it and he's willing to trade them a signed practice worn Raiders helmet, which to me, that's the funny part of the story. It's not that he asked Twitter for it. I mean, we can make fun of the fact that he literally tweeted it and that's his method for finding a helmet, but he does have 1.4 million followers. He has a bunch of other people like me who don't follow him who will see the tweet. I'm sure there's one of his followers has the helmet. The problem is that he's offering a sweaty practice helmet <laughs> that's signed for a helmet he threatened to retire over. Now he's going to make 15.6 million this year, 17 million in 2020, 17 and a half million in 2021. He was threatening to throw away all that money because he couldn't wear his helmet. And now he's looking for that helmet and he's offering a signed practice, practice helmet. I, I, you know what I mean? Like if you guys, if, if there's anyone out there who has this helmet, I really hope you do not settle for the practice 
sweaty Antonio Brown signed helmet. You need you to be asking for like ten grand, good. ten grand, or season tickets, or you. Know, I thought you said something good. It's a, it's a joke. It's a season ticket joke. What's that? I said I thought you said something good. How did you not get that? The Raiders season tickets are good. Nobody wants Raiders oh, season okay. tickets. Well. Yeah, that's a fair point. Ask, favorite, ask for, ask for, favorite. ask for one of his Bentleys. No, my, my favorite suggestion someone tweeted at the realness 20 replied to Antonio Brown saying, I've got one. Any chance you can get me Juju's signed helmet though? I <laughs> saw so that is rough. That is rough. Um, anything out did, did, did Antonio Brown? Uh, well, the important thing is that he, so he did report on Tuesday to the Raider. He's, he's in Napa. Problem is that he doesn't know when he's going to play again. And this is what I was saying on the emergency Antonio Brown podcast on Monday is the helmet's not going to be an issue because he's going to, he's not going to retire over all that money. The issue is his frostbitten free feet and he still doesn't know when he's going to play. He was visiting a foot specialist. The Raiders don't know. He doesn't know that to me is still the big issue. And I mean, the, it's just crazy because you know, with every sing, single injury we have built in timelines that we generally know how long a player is going to be out. We don't know with frostbitten feet how long it takes for a player to be able to start running and play football again. So to me, that's the biggest concern. Mm. Uh, he hadn't actually, have we actually seen him back at practice? Am I crazy? Yeah, there was a photo and he did a, he did a little press conference with reporters today, I think. Uh, we'll see if I go back and add a section in about, uh, about hard knocks. Just in the case that I don't, hard knocks is supposed to address it. Maybe we'll circle back on the, uh, the Wednesday show and, or the Thursday show and, and talk about hard knocks because we do have a full show, uh, today. Um, actually, uh, Antonio Brown is, uh, extremely grateful to be back. Perhaps we will, uh, perhaps Sean, perhaps we will be able to, uh, to get some audio of Antonio Brown back at camp. What do you think if we can pull that off, huh? Possible? Uh, with you, 50-50. Alright, you heard that? He's excited to be back. Alright, we gotta move on. I'm tired of Antonio Brown. So, so, you know what? Tired Antonio Brown. Wired Trent Williams. No, I'm just kidding. That was, the, that was the worst edition of that meme. Tired Antonio, <laughs> tired Antonio Brown. Wired Eli Manning. Uh, John Mar on Eli Manning. I hope Eli has a great year. And Daniel Jones never sees the field. Jim John Mara Mara said, whatever his name is, when asked what an ideal season would look like via uh, SNY. That would be in an ideal world. You'd like to see that. At the end of the day, it's going to be a decision by the head coach as to when or if Daniel ends up playing this year. Buy or sell Mr. John Mara's comments. Mara's comments. I never say it right. Mr. John Mara's comments that uh that Daniel Jones will never see the field. Uh I buy that he genuinely believes that he hopes Daniel Jones doesn't see the field this year because I really think in that building they've somehow talked themselves into winning the NFC East. And they're looking at the Cowboys and they're saying, look at all that contract dysfunction. Who knows when Zeke's going to be there? Dak Prescott wants $40 million. They're a dysfunctional organization. They're saying Carson Wentz never stays healthy. What if he only plays eight games? Nick Foles is gone. We've got Saquon. We're going to grind it. So I think they've talked themselves into with Eli Manning. We can go 10 and six and make the playoffs. Um, and look, you yourself has put, mo- has put money on, on the Giants winning in NFC East. So they're not the only one crazy. They're not the only crazy ones here. Do <laughs> uh, so I buy that he will play all 16 games? No, because I don't think they're going to be good. I think there's going to be a pressure when Eli is doing what Eli has done for the past couple of years to put in the, the rookie who, by the way, preseason does, might not really matter. But he played about as well as he could have played in his preseason debut, 
And again, that might not mean much for the future, but I actually think it, it, it means something for him because he, this was a guy getting booed at Yankee games before he could play in the preseason. And so he kind of did buy him a little bit, buy himself a little bit of time with the fans because if he had gone out there in the preseason and thrown a pick six, then I feel like he would have had already so much public pressure against him that it would have been difficult for a rookie already being tasked with learning an offense and all that. So good for him. Um, I still think he plays somewhere around eight, six to eight games, I would guess, I would say. Uh, I would say that's probably right. And finally in the news, Tony Romo appeared on CBS Sports HQ and had this to say. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I think um, that's a coin flip. I think, uh, but I do think he'll be back at some point. But uh, week one, it'll be close. That is, he's discussing, as you might expect, Ezekiel Elliott. And as Tony Romo is saying it, Sean, he's making a very Tony Romo face. I mean, unsurprising, not surprising. He's, he's got a, uh, I don't want to call it a, a smirk or anything like that, but it's a, it's like a knowing grin. He's got a knowing grin going on as if he's, eh, Tony is, he might not be back week one. It's a coin flip. So w- with that in mind, would you be, does Tony Romo saying that make you nervous? Or not nervous about the idea of drafting Zeke Elliott? Very nervous because when I actually saw that floating around, my fantasy draft is Tuesday night and one of my keepers is Ezekiel Elliott. And obviously with the, in the keeper league, it's a lot easier to keep him, you, you know, even if he's going to miss the beginning of the season. But look, I mean, Tony Romo is probably more plugged in than people just because he's still probably very friendly with that organization. His best bud, Witten, is back playing for the team. Mm-hmm. Um, Am I concerned? Yes. I also feel like inevitably, based off everything the Cowboys are saying, that they're going to end up paying everyone. They're going to give Dak what he wants, not forty million, but they're going to meet him, you know, in the middle. And then I think everything Jerry has said has indicated that he's confident that Zeke is going to get a deal. I so I think it's going to happen. Um, our Jared Dubin actually wrote something Tuesday about why they shouldn't, or maybe Wednesday. I don't know if it's up yet. Um, about why they shouldn't pay Zeke. That's a pretty interesting read. I'd recommend people go check that out. Mm, I would recommend it as well. All right. Uh, let's get to Sam Monson, unless there's any other news that we forgot. And um, uh, I don't think there is. So let's take a break, and we'll get to Sam Monson from PFF. The perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, The designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, joining us now on the program to talk some grades. No, I'm just kidding. To talk some football, because he's a football guy, Sam Monson. Sam, PFF legend. What's going on, buddy? PFF legend. I like it. Are you not? A, are, you are, aren't you senior PFF legend? Isn't that your official title? I don't think legend officially <laughs> appears in my title, but I'll take it. Uh, what's, uh, give me a rundown. What's the word, like, what's, 
what's the good word at PFF right now? Like, what is, cause I, I mean, every, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, like, you guys came along as, you know, I mean, I think Sean is in the same boat as like, we're sort of, you know, I was sort of, you know, coming along as an analyst and you guys, uh, are now one of the premier analytical voices, um, in, in all of football. What are you guys locked in on as you head into the 2019 season in terms of tweaking things on the site and what you're looking for? Yeah, I mean, I think the fun thing with us is for years we were so concentrated on just, get, you know, getting all this data in, grading the games, grading players, collecting everything. We never really did anything with it. You know, we just had all this data and then we we're selling it to, to teams and to, to all this kind of stuff. And it's only recently when we brought on guys like Eric Eager and, and George Shahuri, our, our data scientists, that we actually have some smart math guys behind it all. So. <laughs> Now these guys can dig into all this data and start doing really cool stuff with it in a way that, you know, none of us really could. So they've been developing all kinds of really cool stuff, um, like PFF War, our attempt at kind of creating a wins above replacement metric like baseball. Um, I think that's really the next kind of step with all this PFF data. It's, it's trying to turn it towards quantifying value as opposed to just performance. I like hearing that because I always try to make some some kind of analogy to baseball. Um, you know, when when talking about value above replacement, I, I mean, I'll ask you this: like, a, do you have sort of the premise of that mapped out? And b, as a concrete example, uh, what kind of value would you give to a guy like Zeke Elliott, who is currently you know missing from the Cowboys uh, against maybe like a, a literal average replacement like a Tony Pollard? I mean, how you know how would how would that work as maybe a concrete as example of what y'all are doing? Yeah, I mean we've got a pretty good framework of it all uh, mapped out so far. We don't quite have it ready for for public consumption, and honestly, there's there's a chance that it may never be a public facing thing. The NFL teams are, are really excited about war for, yeah. for obvious reasons. You know, it's a big free agent uh, and sort of pro personnel advantage for them. So we'll see exactly what path that goes down, but it's kind of, as you would expect, you know, this is a passing league. So quarterbacks are everything. So if you look at last year, I think the top 20 or the top 18 players, something like that are all quarterbacks. Um, yeah. You know, the very, very best quarterback seasons, Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady a couple of years ago, those guys are worth like eight wins above replacement. Holy but crap. anybody that isn't the quarterback, yeah, like anybody that isn't the quarterback is worth a couple of wins tops. So, you know, you look at a guy like Aaron Donald, and for as phenomenal as he is, I think Donald is probably comfortably the best player in the NFL. He's only worth, you know, a win and a half or so above replacement, which is, I think, second among all defensive players. But behind all the quarterbacks, behind those 18 quarterbacks, behind a few receivers as well, they just don't, they just can't have the same impact as guys that move the needle in the passing game. And, you know, a guy like Zeke Elliott is dealing with the same kind of issue. You know, as good as he is, and he's a phenomenal player, good at kind of all aspects of the game, all the data that we've pulled out says that running backs just aren't the thing that is relevant to whether you're going to have success running the ball on the ground it sounds crazy because those are the guys carrying the ball but the run blocking is way more important if you open up holes in the run game it almost doesn't matter who the running back is they're going to have success then you know you're able to manipulate the box count by the kind of formation you run if you play 11 personnel you run out there with three wide receivers you're not going to get the kind of loaded box that we're that we think about that's deployed to stop a guy like Zeke Elliott or Adrian Peterson or, or one of those players. So 
you can change that easily in a way that makes more of a difference than the running back just being good. So, you know, ultimately it all comes down to guys like AJ or guys like Zeke Elliott, like Melvin Gordon, they, nobody deserves to be paid more than those players because they have one of the highest attritional um, roles in the national football league. But all of the data says that if you take them out and you plug in somebody else, as long as the blocking is good and the offense knows what it's doing, it, it, it'll be, they'll be fine. You don't need those top-end running backs. So if, if quarterbacks are the consensus top, uh, most valuable position, which we would all naturally assume, is there a consensus when you look at these war rankings, number two position? Because I think most people would assume if quarterbacks are number one, guys who can get after the quarterback are probably number two, but you just said Aaron Donald is worth only, you know, one and a half wins and he had what, 20 sacks last season. So when you look at these preliminary findings, is there any one group that you can see that is closest to the quarterbacks or is it pretty much just on a player by player basis? Yeah. So it's, it's basically a hierarchy of the most important parts of uh, the passing game, the passing game, both passing the ball and then stopping the pass. So obviously the quarterback is the most important part of the passing game. Then it's wide receivers. It's the guys he's throwing the ball to. And then after that, it's defensive backs. It's the guys stopping the opposing quarterback, throwing the ball to people. Then it's pass rushes. And then, you know, anybody that has anything to do with the running game. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, where do you, um, I, I sort of lost track. I think it was you guys, but I, I, I lose track of the analytics uh, wars. They go on daily on Twitter, uh, but, you know, between like the, but what, are you, you guys are the ones who started the cornerbacks are better than pass rushers argument, right? And, um, can you, I mean, do you, do you buy into that? Cause I, I, I think, it, I mean, to me, it sort of works in tandem, but I totally get the concept of uh, a stud cornerback is maybe, uh, better, you know, like, I don't know, maybe better than like an average pass rusher, but I don't know if an average, you know, an average cornerback is as valuable as a, you know, what I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like it, I, I find right. it hard to justify that on looking at it from that angle. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with all this, right? Is it's not one or the other. If you, right. you need, you need a little bit of everything. And, you know, one of the reasons that coverage is more important than pass rush in our eyes is that you need more quality coverage players than you do need quality pass rushes. You know, if you have, there are five, everyone's playing nickel defense. It's like their base now. It's like 75% of the snaps. So you need five guys on the secondary that can cover. Otherwise, you're going to have somebody that's getting targeted by the opposing passing game and you're going to give up a ton of points. Now, if you have an Aaron Donald, you can have a pretty decent pass rush right out of the gate without having anybody else, let alone another three or four studs. So I think one of the reasons it's important is because you need more of those players to have a sort of high functioning unit there. Um, you know, on a kind of all things being equal uh, setting, it makes sense, right? Aaron Donald can do, Everything he wants, he can be basically unblockable, but you can kind of take him out of the game by what you want to do on offense. You know, you can have quick passes, you can double team, you can have chips, you can do a lot to remove the impact of a guy like Donald. Um, And the pass can still get away. And if the coverage is bad, even if he had pressure, it can still be a touchdown. Whereas on the back end, if you have a cornerback who literally prevents his receiver catching the ball, it doesn't matter what the, what the pass rush did up front. He's going to stop the play being a problem. So, yeah, I think they're not, it's not a dramatic thing. You know, it's not like one is massively more important than the other one. But I think all the data says that 
if you if all things being equal, you should lean to address in coverage before you lean to address pass rush. And I think there is a case to be made too that it might be easier to become a good pass rusher because you are rushing forward uh, and just trying to beat offensive linemen. I mean, you got to have moves and all of that, and you have to have the speed and size, but it takes a lot of factors to go into being a cornerback. The number that you said that really surprised me was seventy five percent nickel. Is it? Are we that high now? Is that what we had last year? I haven't, I haven't, I hadn't looked at the numbers um, mainly because I have a five year old. But um, are, are we at? Uh, are we at? Are we at seventy five percent now? Where we're just three. Yeah. Quarters of the way nickel? I think I ran the numbers relatively recently. I think it was 75% in 2018. Um, it was, wasn't as high the year before, but I, I think I remember last year being 75% nickel league wide. Um, well, my follow up then would be, are, do you think smart analytical teams are going to see that and try to run the ball more, even though it's a passing league now, understanding that you're going to get these softer fronts with, um, you know, three cornerbacks on the field and the ability to out-muscle teams? Yeah, I think a few teams are looking for ways to get ahead of that curve, you know, whether it's the Lions who are looking at basically just getting a bunch of run specialists on either side of the ball and just hoping that getting ahead and, and, and focusing on the run game is the way to do it. I don't think that that's going to be the sensible way of, of this functioning. I think ultimately if you load up with run-heavy formations, teams are still going to play, um, you know, heavy defensive formations and be able to block up all those gaps and stop you running the ball. I don't think that's the way it's going to work. But I think really smart teams are going to start running a lot more out of essentially pass formations, mm. you know, so – a team like the Patriots, they're going to run out there in 11 personnel. They're going to keep you in nickel, and then they're going to run the ball from those formations, and you're going to have nickel defensive backs. You're going to have 185-pound corners coming downhill and trying to tackle running backs in space, and it's it's not going to be as good. So I think you're going to see a few teams start leaning on that. It, they may still be a pass-happy team overall, but they're going to really focus on how they run the ball as opposed to the volume in which they do it. Something when you were talking about how cornerbacks, you know, are more valuable maybe than pass rushers I was thinking of is that, you know, with the league obviously becoming more pass heavy and more pass friendly and now we have pass interference becoming reviewable. Um, I mean, do you agree that with this new pass interference rule, it almost seems like now good defensive backs are even more valuable because you have the bad ones who aren't going to be able to get away with tugging, getting away with all these things that slow motion is going to catch. Um, so I guess that would kind of mesh with what you're saying is that defensive backs might matter more uh, than pass rushers just because the rules are now so geared against them. It's kind of like how when the NFL moved, you know, the PAT back uh, to the 15-yard line or wherever it is now, you know, good kickers, you know, had more value because suddenly the extra point wasn't automatic. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what kind of impact the whole focus on, on pass interference and making it reviewable actually has and all that stuff. Um it's, it's one of the sort of trends to watch throughout the season. I think the first the first half of the year is going to be the NFL trying to figure out exactly what it wants to do with this, kind of the way they did a year ago with the, the kind of the lowering the helmet rule. So I think it's uncharted territory for everybody. One, the, the league trying to figure out exactly what it wants to do with this penalty, and then us seeing the impact it makes on the value of defensive backs or, or how much those guys are able to play to their their, their level. Uh, do you guys, oh, yeah. sorry, do you guys track already pass interference penalties and like, you know, I, I remember, yeah. okay, so you guys would have that stat available for 
you know, this corner, you know, maybe he was targeted eight times in coverage and he allowed one reception. But on the other hand, he also had three pass interference penalties for 45 yards. So you guys would track that. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the reasons we've always been a little bit lower on Xavier Rhodes than a lot of people, um, because sometimes his numbers are excellent. If you look at just his coverage numbers, but he's he's often able to hide a lot of bad coverage in penalties. You know, he's consistently a pretty highly penalized uh, cornerback, and those, those don't come by accident. You know, those are typically on plays where he's beaten or he's struggling and he's trying to claw back an advantage and, and get dinged for it. So those those are bad coverage plays that get hidden from the sort of conventional stance, um, but show up in the grading. I would love to see Brandon Browner's grade from 2015. <laughs> if I remember rightly, he had the highest penalty count we've ever seen from a cornerback that year. That that would uh, that would the the eye test will uh, will check out <laughs> on that one. Hey Sam, I'm curious what. Um, and by the way, uh, if if you don't subscribe to Pro Football Focus now, by the way, at pff.com, not just profootballfocus.com. Yeah. That that feels new and different. I like it. Um, who who owned pff.com before? Like, who did you have to deliver a brown paper bag with a bunch of cash in it? Like, did Collinsworth take a huge bag of cash yeah. to somebody in like the middle of Cincinnati and have to hand them like a like ten thousand grand for or ten grand for uh, for, for pff.com? Well, firstly. Sadly, it wasn't a brown paper envelope transaction. I think there was escrows and all sorts of uh, complicated <laughs> stuff involved I'm, in it. I'm sure. Um, also, it was significantly more cash than ten grand, unfortunately. Uh, I am also um, sure. Apparently, apparently, way back when, the Pakistani Football Federation owned it. But since <laughs> whenever they lost it, there's been some guy just squatting on it, I think, and, and waiting for the money to roll in. Oh, man. And you guys just finally had to, like, be like all right, we're big enough. we got to pay this guy. Because I mean, I'm sure people go to pff.com. I mean, I can't imagine they wouldn't. Um, this, that, I'd actually watch a 30 for 30 on that, and I wish there was a, a brown paper bag. Sadly, sadly, there wasn't. Um, when, when you guys, when you guys dive into the stats and, and, and look at defensive players, are there certain defensive stats for you guys, whether they're pri- pr- proprietary or whether, you know, it's just, uh, pressures versus quarterback hits, et cetera, et cetera, versus, you know, passes defense that sort of pretend a potential breakout for, for a younger player or older player, whoever it is, certain things, that, metrics that you guys key on from a defensive standpoint? I think pressure is, is always a big one. You know, everyone still wants to measure pass rushers by sacks. Right. And obviously sacks are what everybody's trying to get. That's the, the goal of pass rushers is to sack the quarterback, end the play, put them behind the eight ball on that drive. But ultimately it's a really terrible measure of a guy's pass rush because it's a tiny, tiny percentage of his pass rushing snaps the guy's rushing the passer 500 times in a season, the difference between five sacks, between 10 sacks, between 15 sacks, it's just such a small percentage you're trying to measure. And that's assuming that every one of those sacks is an equal play, which we know isn't true. You know, right. sometimes you're going to go Khalil Mack on it. You're going to bulldoze the left tackle. You're going to run over the running back and you're going to beat a double team to get a sack in two seconds. And sometimes you just happen to be stood in the right place when somebody else flushes him in your direction and you just grab him by the, this jersey and pull under the ground. Those are essentially the same statistic, but obviously dramatically different plays. So we've always been trying to focus on pressures because obviously there's way more of them. You know, you get the, the hits, the hurries, the sacks. We've also got a, a, a statistic that we call kind of blocks defeated, which if you can imagine, you know, quarterback drops back, looks to his right-hand side, 
left tackle gets whooped off the snap. He's lying face first in the dirt. The difference between that play being nothing and being a sack is essentially whether the quarterback pulls that ball down or not. Mm. But the tackle and the pass rusher, like nothing changes. So we want to give that guy credit for beating his block and, and giving or punishing green grading terms the, the, the tackle for giving up that play. So you can look at all those things rolled together and then you start to get a much better reflection of a guy's sort of pass rushing win rate um, as opposed to just how many sacks he had. And when you do that, you can start to see people that have been incredibly productive in limited snaps and limited opportunities. And I think we always take this uh, approach of it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll translate the same if you give them a full workload, if you put them out there as every down players. But at the very minimum, it means you need to start finding out if that's the case. Right. Because, you know, a guy can only do, a guy can only do what he can do in the opportunity he's given. So, you know, we've been way out ahead on people like Cameron Wake. You know, I think it was a year where Joey Porter had 15 sacks or something. Cameron Wake had like 100 snaps. And Joey Porter's grade wasn't good because he just kept looking into these sacks, whether they were unblocked, whether they were clean up whatever it was, he wasn't grading particularly well, and he didn't have a lot of pressure. It's just that every time he was getting pressure, it was a sack. But quietly in those limited snaps, Cameron Wake was one of the most ridiculous, ridiculously productive pass rushes we'd ever seen. And we were saying, okay, Porter may have gotten 15 sacks, but they, the Dolphins need to get this guy Cameron Wake on the field more because his production is crazy. And we need to see if that'll hold up over a bigger period. And obviously it did. But I think every year there's a couple of guys like that who you just want to see some more of to see if it, if it does translate to that higher workload. Would you classify someone like Jadavion Clowney in that group? Because it seems like for the last couple of years when he's been healthy, the knock against him is, well, he's never had double-digit sack totals. He's always around nine. But obviously if you just watch him play a game, your first thought is this guy is an impact player on every single snap, whether it's against a runner creating pressure. Um, and if he does or doesn't fall into that category – who are some guys right now that you think, based off pressure numbers that don't have the sack totals, could you know make that leap this year? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Clowney is more a case of um, of sort of splash plays uh, distorting people's overall perception of what he can be. You know, I think he has got the talent on any given snap to wreck games like like the best players in the NFL. You know, he can be Khalil Mack on any given play. The problem is he just doesn't do it with anything like the frequency that Khalil Mack does. And there's far too many plays in a game where Clowney goes missing in a way that you just don't see from Mack or Von Miller or J.J. Watt or any of these other great players. So I think Clowney is more a case of he's what happens when you add up and quantify all of the plays as opposed to just creating a highlight reel. You know, if you if you created a highlight reel of, of Jadavion Clowney over a season – he would look like the best defensive player in, in football. Um, and so would Khalil Mack, and so would the top 20 players. Uh, th- what separates them is what happens in the other 600 plays, the other plays that aren't their best. Um, and that's where I think Clowney just gets distanced a little bit from those guys. Um, in terms of players, I think that kind of are screaming out a little bit for um, high level or getting a bit more snaps because of the production they've had. Um, I, I think there's there's some defensive players that get perennially underlooked and then there's guys that probably need a little bit more of a look i've always been kind of intrigued by by uh, ryan anderson in washington i think he's been productive a guy that um, doesn't get the credit i think that he deserves even coming out of college was always 
um, kind of ignored overall. But I think he's been a player that's been quietly productive and just hasn't been able to stay on the field. So he'd definitely be one of them. Um, shifting uh, gears a little bit uh, to the offensive side, you mentioned we were talking before that uh, you guys are higher on Tampa Bay than uh, maybe other people are. Uh, I don't want to say what the hell are you thinking? Cause I do, there is a little bit of fear. There is like a little bit of fear for me. And it's mostly Bruce Arians based when it comes to, to Tampa Bay. What makes you look at the Bucks and think, all right, this is a team that people are sleeping on, uh, outside of, cause I don't know, it feels like it's always that case. Uh, and yet the division ends up chewing them up and spitting them out. Yeah. So it's actually Bruce Arians that makes us kind of high on the Bucks because okay. that combination of Bruce Arians and Jameis Winston, it just has the potential to be a perfect match. Now, it doesn't mean it will. And Jameis Winston, if, if we've seen one thing from him so far in his career, it's definitely he has the potential to take pretty much any situation and make it a mess. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm not saying it's a sure thing by any means. But, you know, Bruce Arians has this track record of getting incredible career years out of quarterbacks that were a little bit like Jameis Winston. And by that, I mean – sort of volatile players that were well capable of making big plays regularly, but also had a ton of turnover-worthy plays, a ton of bad plays to go along with the good, whether it's Ben Roethlisberger, whether it's Carson Palmer in Arizona. So Jameis already plays this kind of style and always has. And I think now you're finally teaming him up with a, a coach that wants to play that way and understands how to teach it. And they still have really good weaponry there. I just, I like, the, the potential matchup. I think it has the ability to be a really impressive uh, group. And I think as, as good as the rest of that division is, you know, the Saints should be one of the better teams out there. But I don't think the Bucks should fear the Falcons or the, the Panthers. So I think there's a the chance to sneak in as that second team in that division. Um, mm, all right. That's, uh, that is, that is certainly a, uh, an unusual take, but I like it. Hey, look, you guys are, you guys are right when a lot of people are, are, are missing the point oftentimes. One thing we do agree on, Sam, the Pittsburgh Steelers are going to destroy everything in their path and go 16 and 0 and, uh, and win the AFC <laughs> North. Maybe, maybe not that far, but, um, I am big on, the Ben Roethlisberger MVP hype train that hadn't even started yet. It, it is, it is, it is not just driven by the fact that he led the league in passing yards last year, that he's a Hall of Fame quarterback, um, that they have a lot of good weapons around him, even with the, but it, it's also driven by the narrative of the idea that Le'Veon Bell is gone, Antonio Brown is gone, people are sort of writing him off, people are buying into the Browns, and I want to buy up the Steelers when, when the public is sort of fading him. What makes, uh, pro football focus so high on the Steelers this year? Yeah, a lot of it is kind of, it's almost fading the Ravens more than it is really big enough the Steelers. I don't think that the Ravens are going to dominate. We know that the Bengals are not going to be great. Yeah. Um, the Browns are the great unknown because I think there's legitimate substance behind a lot of that hype. But what makes the Steelers really good over the past few years is still there. You know, they still have the quarterback. They still have the offensive line. They, you know, those are the things that mean you're going to have a successful uh, offense. Juju Smith-Schuster has looked excellent as a number two. I don't see any reason why he can't step up as a number one and continue to have extremely good success. And then they have a bunch of other weapons. We've already seen that they can lose Le'Veon Bell and not skip a beat because they have one of the best offensive lines in the NFL. And as we we covered earlier, that's the thing that determines whether you're going to have rushing success on the ground more than having the all-pro running back yet. So I just think there's too much still there that was the reason this team has been good for so long 
that losing Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown is not going to suddenly derail them and turn them into also Rams. What do you What do you guys think about the Browns? Because you said that you know the main reason you guys are picking the Steelers is because you don't have a lot of faith in the Ravens, which to me obviously makes a lot of sense. And then you look at the Browns, who to me is a hard team to evaluate because if you're just going off what their roster looks like, to me they look like at least as good. The Steelers maybe better in terms of just pure talent. But then you factor in Freddie Kitchens, first year head coach, um, not much experience there. You have. Um, you know, a tough opening schedule, a second-year quarterback, and it seems like this could be the kind of season where they have so much hype and things go wrong, Kitchens can't handle it, maybe Odell, you know, has a meltdown, something like that. So where do you fall on the Browns? Because it seems like, again, just from pure talent, I want to pick them to, to win the division. Yeah, I think our our overall projections has them at something like 8.4 wins, which would be taking the under. I think Vegas has them at nine wins right now for the for the season. But you have to like what they've assembled. And I think we're just so excited to see Baker Mayfield in year two. You know, obviously PFF was basically driving that Baker hype train all the way through his college career, all the way through the draft process. Um, we were saying he was the number one player in the draft right from the get-go. Finally, as we got right towards the draft, other people started to get on board with that. But I think year one, we, we saw that Baker is absolutely legit. And if anything, the way he played last year kind of suggested he could be even better this year in a hurry. Um, all of the data we pulled in terms of trying to work out what aspects of the PFF grading are predictive and what kind of stay stable year to year it's actually the mistakes that a quarterback makes that don't tend to change. So how, what percentage of uncatchable passes he throws or what percentage of, of really bad decisions he makes, that's the stuff that doesn't change. And in particular, you know, how they play from a clean pocket when all, when all is looking good. The plays under pressure are the ones that kind of can differentiate guys, but they're way more unstable. It's way more, I don't want to say random chance because obviously there's a lot of skill involved, but they're way harder to predict that kind of situation going forward. And the one thing that changed from Baker a lot going from college to pro was that he suddenly jacked up his level of um, uncatchable pass rate by quite an amount. And that's usually the kind of stuff that stays stable year on year on year. So if that just sort of moves back, regresses towards the mean, heads back in the direction we come to expect from Mayfield, without doing anything else, he could immediately look an awful lot better and that's before you start thinking about the addition of Odell Beckham um, and what that wide receiver group could look like within there. I'm just really excited for what this offense could look like um, and, and where Baker could take this team because you could tell basically from the instant he stepped on the field against the Jets last year that quarterbacks like him, like Russell Wilson, mm-hmm. it just looks different when those guys come on the field. It's very, very difficult to try and quantify exactly what that is. But it's just an immediate, complete change in what the entire offense looks like when they're at the helm. Yeah, I mean, I I remember, I mean, not even that long ago, but I remember watching the game, and I had I had put in a bet before the season on Sam Darnold at like eighteen to one to win Offensive Rookie of the Year. Um, you know, he threw that pick six, but then looked pretty good against the Lions. And like the second Baker walked out of that field and started playing, I was like, well, this is effed. I mean, like, there's no way, like, like Baker's gonna, <laughs> Baker's gonna win this award or like Saquon, you know what I mean? Like, Darnold's not gonna be the top quarterback. And I, I like Darnold. Is, is there, when you look at these young passers, have, have you 
sort of change your tune on any of them after one year, whether it's Lamar, Josh Allen, um, you know, uh, uh, Baker, Sam Darnold? How do you sort of look at those guys and what do the stats tell you about, uh, one of them, one, two, three of them making a leap in, um, in 2019? Yeah, I don't know if we've changed our opinion on any of them. I think we're, there's a few where the, obviously the jury is still out. So, you know, Baker, I think, is the one we're most confident in in terms of he's exactly what we thought he was all the way along, which is the next star quarterback in the NFL. Darnold obviously had a pretty rough sort of first half of the season, but really came together late on. I think we've always liked his potential and the talent that he has and the ability, if he can put it all together. So he's, I think, a big question mark this year, just how much he can take a step forward and really emerge as that next best quarterback of the group. You know, Rosen was a guy that we liked, but he just hasn't had a shot yet. He's gone from the worst quarterback situation in the NFL in Arizona to what now may be the worst quarterback situation in the NFL in Miami. So I, I just, we could we end up being two years into his career, throwing him on the trash heap and having no real idea if he ever had a shot to do anything else, given the situation he was in. And then the guys, you know, Lamar Jackson and Josh Allen, I think Allen surprised people a little bit in terms of being able to make some of those big plays still at the NFL level, particularly on the ground with his athleticism. Um, but we still saw this incredibly inaccurate, incredibly hot or cold quarterback that is, you know, equally capable of missing an easy wide open pass as he is uh, making some crazy length of the field touchdown pass. Um, and then Lamar Jackson the offense that they've created for him is exactly, I think, what they needed to do. You know, nobody ever doubted that there was a path to NFL success for Lamar Jackson, but it wasn't going to look like the same path that Baker Mayfield or um, Sam Darnold is going to tread. It was going to have to be unique and bespoke to Lamar Jackson. I think that's what we're seeing. The only question is, can he, can he reach a baseline of accuracy that at least lets him be a viable passer given the offense around him? How much do you guys weight preseason performance? Because, um, look, everyone knows, you know, Josh Rosen was pretty terrible last year in Arizona, albeit in a terrible situation that most rookie quarterbacks probably wouldn't thrive in. Um, and then you look at what he did just in week one of the preseason, which, again, probably doesn't mean that much. But he actually, I thought, looked pretty good for the Dolphins. And I was just looking right now um, at your guys' grades for week one of the preseason. He had the second-best grade among the rookie quarterbacks from last year. Baker was number one, um, highly graded. How much do you put weight into what players do in the preseason? Can it be indicative of, you know, what's to come in the regular season, or do you guys, does it not really matter that much? Yeah, I mean, if you listen to the data science guys, they say it basically doesn't matter at all. Hmm. Um, those guys are barely paying attention to anything that happens in preseason. I think if you listen to some of the rest of us, may, and maybe this is just <laughs> maybe this is just our attempt to stay relevant for the next month, <laughs> we, we like to think it means something. You know, I, and I think as long as you're aware of what you're looking at, I think you can tell some things from preseason. So, you know, the first thing, obviously, is you have to be aware of exactly who's on the field, that suddenly when the second team defense comes on, you start lighting it up. That doesn't mean your offense suddenly found its groove. It means that everybody you were facing suddenly got worse when the first team took a seat on the bench. Um, so, you know, as long as you're aware of that kind of stuff, I think you can start to see little bits and pieces. And I think, you know, from our experience doing college and then grading the AAF and its, uh, and its limited run, God rest its soul, um, you start to see that players don't really change that much. You know, guys that we thought were good in college and then showed they were good in the NFL, 
and then wound up in the AAF, they were still good. Um, and equally, you know, players like Christian Hackenberg, who at no point ever graded well, <laughs> he still sucks. It doesn't matter what level of competition <laughs> you put him up against. He's always going to be bad. He's just a bad player. So, you know, I think you see that kind of thing in preseason, that you put these guys out there, you thought they were really good in college, and they look comfortable, and they suddenly start carving up NFL defenses as well. And it's just, you know, I think a lot of it is confirmation bias, but you can start to see, I think, little bits and pieces of just, yeah, you know, he's going to be who we thought he was. So I guess I, I need to ask you this because I'm the only one, it seems like on this podcast, who is constantly anti-Josh Allen, and you talking about, you know, players, you know, if they're just bad, they're bad. doesn't matter what level they're facing. Uh, I watched Josh Allen's first preseason game, and against the preseason, who knows, it might not matter, but almost immediately he's overthrowing receivers downfield for about five yards. What is your opinion on Josh Allen? Do you think he was a victim of circumstance last year, you know, with a terrible offensive line, no running game, no receivers, and he could be in store for a big leap? Or, I mean, do you think Josh Allen's Josh Allen? He's always going to be missing – uh, receivers with that big but erratic arm? Well, that, the thing is, I don't think that those two things are mutually exclusive. I think we could see a significant step forward from Josh Allen, but you're not going to change who he is, which is, you know, he's not going to morph into Drew Brees in terms of accuracy. He is always going to be a fundamentally inaccurate quarterback, at least on the scale of NFL passers. You know, you're never going to see him amongst the best um, in terms of accuracy or just a completion percentage of any of that stuff. He's always going to miss throws. Um, but the Bills, I think, are doing the right thing in terms of surrounding him with the, the right kinds of players to minimize the impact that has. So you bring in a guy like John Brown, who's still a really dangerous deep threat, and you pair him with a guy who loves to go deep more than any other quarterback in the NFL, that's at least a good thing to do. You bring in a guy like Cole Beasley, who is this underneath um, you know, Wes Welker-type slot uh, weapon who can get open underneath, you think, well, that's not a great fit for a guy that's inaccurate and wants to go down the field. But the point is, if you have a receiver that's going to get greater separation than anybody else underneath, it, it maximizes Josh Allen's margin for error, right? So even if he's still going to leave the ball a yard behind Cole Beasley on a quick whip route to the sideline, now Cole Beasley is two yards of separation, so he can adjust to that in a way that whoever was – he was throwing it out last year, wasn't going to be able to do because they had a cornerback right next to them who was going to make the play on the ball. So, you know, I think Allen will remain Josh Allen, but I think the Bills are at least doing the right things to sort of put him in the best position to succeed. And then you just end up with this sort of Cam Newton situation of where does that take you? You know, if we put him in the best position to succeed and we maximize the thing he does well and minimizes the things he does badly – how good is that player at the end of all this? And that's ultimately the question that the Bills and everybody else is going to have to find out. Mm, that's a good take. I like it. I, Sean was probably hoping you would thrash Josh Allen a little bit more. He's a, he's <laughs> that's a, what I was expecting if I was being completely honest. That backfired. That's fine. That's fine. Josh Allen, uh, Sam could be worried that Pete Briscoe might be lurking in the, in the weeds of this podcast and like leap out, <laughs> leap out in a Josh Allen mask and jump him. All right, Sam, we took up too much of your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, people make sure and go to pff.com. There is, I mean, it's an, uh, absurd wealth of information there from uh betting you can use pff green line which has added college i think this year sam um 
Also, yeah, yeah, if you want to make some cash on college games, um, you can check out PFF Green Line. Also, tons of DFS uh, and and uh, and fantasy information. Scott Barrett is I just started following him like this off season on Twitter. He's an awesome follow on Twitter. It has tons of great uh, fantasy information over there, and uh, of course, PFF full of information in general when it comes to the NFL. Tons of great analysis. Follow Sam at PFF underscore Sam. I think I did that right. Sam, anything else you want to plug? Yeah, and if you guys, if your listeners want a discount, you can use the promo code PFF25, which will get you 25% off anything we offer. So get in there, dig around. You can get it for a month. You can get it for a year, but you can get in and uh, experience all the goodness. All right. Awesome stuff, man. It's always uh, it's always a pleasure to chat football with you, buddy. Absolutely. Anytime. It's fun. 